0: Dear guests, this is my conversation with Laura and Viola, a professor of American foreign policy at Fry Universitat. She has an impressive and inspiring academic background with a PhD from the University of Chicago and studies at the Columbia University. She was a visiting scholar and held fellowships in many prestigious European and American universities, such as the University of Stanford and the University of Oxford. And I need to confess that Professor Viola is one of the most brilliant and rigorous social scientists that I was lucky enough to meet. Many of her courses on American foreign policy largely structured my thoughts on international, and her way of thinking and writing still remains an unattainable goal for me in the future. And even more than that, she is an exceptional teacher and educator who helps uh, many aspiring young scholars and students to develop their own ideas and thoughts. So in today's conversation, I'm honored to have her to discuss her latest book, The Closure of the International System. In this book, Professor Viola develops the closure thesis in order to understand the coexistence of equalities and inequalities in the international system. As such, I couldn't recommend this book enough to everyone who is interested in questions related to international relations, international law, history, or sociology, since the book builds on extensive and diverse material. I truly learned a lot from this book, and also, on a personal note, I think this book is a wonderful and elaborate critique on many powerful and widespread ideas in international relations today, including those liberal and constructivist ideas. And also in our conversation, we touched upon the big elephant in the room, the war in Ukraine. Together with Professor Viola, We discussed the causes of this conflict and contemplated about its future. So if you like the podcast, please share with your friends and, as always, enjoy. Um, So... Uh, thank you for being on the podcast professor viola it's a it's a pleasure and from both me and vava and before discussing your book uh, the closure of the international system i would love to ask you i'd like to start maybe with a broader question uh, about the study of international relations so what do you think is the um the role of uh, the study of international relations today
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure Mm -hmm. and honor to be here. Um, I think that international relations has become ever more relevant in the world today. If you see the series of crises that we're being faced with and confronted with, um, they're international crises. I think that um, most um, politics is uh, beyond Mm -hmm. the boundaries of the nation-states, and so there is a lot of room to think about what role for the global and what role for the international. And international relations uh, focuses on that. So I think there is a, a growing need to really uh, think about all these crises that we're facing, the multiple crises at, mm-hmm. at the moment, uh, in global terms and international terms. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, if we think about climate, obviously the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, security in a broader sense. Um, I, you know, those are things that we need to mm-hmm. have expertise in, in IR to mm-hmm. address. So I think it's relevant, highly relevant.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why I ask, because of course the war in Ukraine, especially reinvigorated these questions of age-old questions of uh, of uh, war and peace, I guess that was the foundation of the discipline, and those moments, I guess, uh, bring maybe life to the discipline itself, and also life to, the, to, in the sense that we can rethink how we think about international. And also maybe, maybe let me ask an like, additional question, do you think um, international relations is—is is it different from political science, or in the sense it's, uh, it's a sense, it's—it's or it's just a subfield of political science? How how do you look uh, in this uh, in this? You know, how do you look at um, international relations in relation to political science?
1: Well, if I just go back to um, your comment for a moment on war and peace, it's mm-hmm. true that uh, you know IR began as a discipline that was really concerned with issues of war and peace, mm-hmm. and especially in the United States, um, the discipline really was built out of uh, considerations of what happened with World War II and Mm -hmm. uh, the subsequent developments after World War II. But it's developed in so many different directions since then. So international Mm -hmm. relations now includes a whole array of topics that go beyond security, that go beyond war and peace. But um, certainly the war in Ukraine has brought back into Mm -hmm. perspective uh, the issues of war and peace and has reminded us that they're not Mm -hmm. really off the table as, um, you know, at different points in history, especially since the end of the Cold War, we like to think, right, Mm -hmm. that these kinds of wars, um, Mm -hmm. geopolitical interstate wars, are Mm -hmm. not going to happen in Europe anymore. But I think the development of the discipline um, to expand beyond issues of war and peace really points to, um, I think, an important uh, development in IR, and that is that, I think it's still anchored in political science, Mm -hmm. but I think that it has... um, been enriched by many different perspectives from other Mm -hmm. disciplines and um, from other areas of political science. So to answer your question, I think that IR in, I think in the academic discipline, it's mostly still anchored in political science, Mm -hmm. although that's not true everywhere. In some places, IR is its own discipline Mm and in in some institutional contexts, it's um, Mm -hmm. uh, integrated into other disciplines. But I think that um, for the most part, it's still anchored in political science and social science, but it's taking on insights from sociology, organizational theory, um, you know, other, other areas, um, mm-hmm. environment, or environmental science for those who are interested mm-hmm. in the environment, um, those who are interested in energy issues, right, have to look elsewhere. People who are interested in security and its interaction with technology have mm-hmm. to look also to other disciplines, uh,
0: mm-hmm. people interested
1: in AI. So I, I think that there's mm-hmm. a lot of room to uh, enrich IR by um, getting insights also from mm-hmm. places outside of political science
0: it can be seen as a, as a sort of multidisciplinary studies in, in a sense, especially nowadays, because there are so many global issues and global problems that um, maybe political science, but we could uh, maybe come back to this idea, of course, we will come back to this idea of uh, universalism, because for me, I see political science as a more universal discipline, that, uh, like economics tries to find this uh, universal laws to uh, social interactions, to political interactions. But of course, for me, international relations is also interesting in a sense that it tries to bring new perspectives and tries to enrich our understanding by, um, by analyzing different perspectives and different takes on, on global events, so to speak yeah um, I mean, I
1: think one of the you know things you you just pointed out is that if we have these global problems, we probably need expertise also from other areas, yeah. right? as we already said, in climate, for example, or AI mm-hmm. or technology those are um mm-hmm. there are other areas that have expertise that that we need to draw on so i yeah. think I think that's right, but I still think you know politics is really okay. crucial. it's not i don't know if it's you know it's status is universal, but you know mm-hmm. politics is about interests it's about power it's about some sort of how we organize society it uh, asks some fundamental mm-hmm. questions about um uh these mm-hmm. questions from a political mm-hmm. perspective that i think is
0: uh still mm-hmm. central to okay. how we think
1: about international relations yes.
0: but you in your book you basically build your argument on both uh, historical um narratives and uh, sociology so to speak that's why i asked it's uh, i guess yeah, it's interesting for me, but now let's, I guess, let me uh, uh, shift to to your book, to the closure of international system. Uh, so, and let, let me just ask: um, um, so, what is the main problem that you are trying to solve by introducing the closure thesis? Uh, so, what motivated your research?
1: Well, I think at the heart of the book is a really a puzzle that comes out of some. Um, arguments that we have in international relations. And I think the way I would formulate the puzzle is this. So we have this um, idea that I think um, extends across a number of approaches to international relations that international society or the international system, the European international system, Mm -hmm. system has expanded over time. It's become more inclusive in a geographic sense. So the European state system has encompassed Mm -hmm. many states and actors outside of, uh, of Europe And also more recently that the um, international system has also found place for other kinds of actors, let's say civil society actors, Mm -hmm. um, uh, NGOs, to also participate in international uh, relations at this international level. Mm -hmm. And I think along with this idea comes an expectation that as more actors get a seat at the table, that they'll also have more influence in international politics and that Mm -hmm the expansion will have something like an equalizing effect. And the puzzle is that that doesn't seem to be happening, or at least there seems to be lots of hierarchy still in Mm -hmm. the international system and political inequalities. Mm -hmm. Now we could ask, why is that the case? Is that the case because the expansion is somehow not yet complete, that the Mm -hmm. equalizing politics is not yet complete so that, you know, those, um, Actors, you know, who invited to the table, for example, in international organizations who don't have equal authority will at some point over time gain that equal authority? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it um, somehow um, that we haven't sort of progressed far enough and that at some point, just as the system expanded, also the rights will start to expand? Mm -hmm. And my argument is that I don't really see that happening. Actually, I see over time, over the long durée, um, the... uh, interaction of equalities and inequalities, the the persistent Mm -hmm. coexistence of these inequalities and equalities. So, for example, where the state system makes um, sovereign states equals, Mm -hmm. it um, makes others Mm non-equals. And I think the argument I want to make is that this is not an anomaly, it's not Mm -hmm. something about uh, we haven't progressed enough uh, through time or that, for example, liberal values of equality haven't yet come to full mm-hmm. fruition. But rather, mm-hmm. I want to make the argument that uh, inequalities and inequalities, political mm-hmm. – I'm, I'm in, in my book, I'm really focused on political equalities and inequalities, I mm-hmm. should make that clear. So mm-hmm. the distribution of decision-making rights, and I'm not talking about material inequalities, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about social status, I'm talking about political inequalities – in the distribution of political authority, and and my argument is that these political equalities and inequalities are mutually implicated. Mm-hmm. That it's not the case that as we have more mm-hmm. equality, that inequality decreases. Okay. Which sounds puzzling, maybe in the first oh, instance, so. but that there <laughs> that there is a relationship between this idea of expansion and the idea of an uh, increased inequalities. Yeah
0: that uh, um, inclusion and exclusion aren't mutually exclusive. That, that, that I found uh, very uh, interesting. And, of course, uh, I wanted to ask you, how, how did you come up with this idea? Because uh, to me it seems uh, it's not on the surface, so to speak, uh, or especially, well, uh, I would say maybe uh, to a certain extent when you maybe look, uh, of course, at domestic politics, you, you see, of course, that the existence to a certain degree uh, inclusion and exclusion at the same time, but it's really hard to disentangle this problem. Uh, especially for me, it's hard to uh, envision how you can even get get close to understanding and get close to analyzing this problem. So, um, I guess um, uh, in in the sense, I also discussed uh, in the chapter uh, false promises of universalism. Uh, and let me ask, um, uh, can we discuss this point because I I really liked it and in the sense. That uh, it, it's all about um, um, the achieve the, the achievement of uh, um, equality by homogenization in a sense like by assimil- assimilation. Um, so, do you think? Um, you know, well, well, I would say this is what is happening since at least 1990s, right, in the international system. Uh, and do you think it's uh, it's it's? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't would ask. It's a wrong way to doing of doing this, but. Uh, it it doesn't it doesn 't promise us the better world, so to speak, or more equal world right uh, in in your argument
1: well um maybe to to start with your first point, how I uh, came to this yes. puzzle right <laughs> I think that um, one thing that really started me off is to think about the uh, principle of sovereign equality. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a foundational principle in international relations. it seems to be mm-hmm. a foundational principle for um, in theoretical terms. All IR paradigms, or at least mainstream mm-hmm. paradigms, seem to be committed to this notion of sovereign equality as mm-hmm. a principle of the international order. And then if you look at international organizations um, of the 20th century, almost all of their charters make some reference to uh, sovereign, the sovereign equality mm-hmm. of members. And yet, if you look at these organizations, yeah. they um, they the sovereign equality doesn't really translate into equal political rights right and, and that is that's is sort of key to the idea of sovereign equality, right is mm-hmm. that these states um, are treated as equals. but if you look at the United Nations, which um, proclaims the sovereign equality equal treatment of mm-hmm. all of its members, you have a hierarchical structure of decision making with the Security Council having special Rights mm-hmm. that General Assembly members don't have, mm-hmm. and um, and they're concentrated in a very few number of members. So that's sort of where the um, where I started with the with the whole argument, where thinking about this promise of equality mm-hmm. in one hand, and yet the sort of obvious inequalities that are built into the system mm-hmm. on the other hand, and again my argument is that this is not sort of a coincidence yeah. it is um, there's a there's a structural relationship I argue mm-hmm. there's a there's a constitutive and a causal relationship between mm-hmm. um, the extension of sovereign equality to some actors and then this institutionalization of political inequalities um, in the international system and I think that um, there are in, in in the book I developed mm-hmm. sort of three um I think about three ways in which actors in the international system mm-hmm. have structured these hierarchies as it were, or these inequalities mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. and one way is through um, simply excluding certain actors from the being able to access common resources or common goods, or excluding mm-hmm. them even from any kind of uh, rights that might be associated with sovereign equality. And um, for those who are included, they um, are included on on the condition, sometimes made explicit and sometimes mm-hmm. not explicit, of a certain kind of um, uh, shared commitment mm-hmm. to uh, or shared characteristics that um, makes the sharing in these collective goods mm-hmm. easier. Another strategy that um, I see, so sort of exclusion, exclusion mm-hmm. from international organizations, and mm-hmm. um, an assimilation of those who are included, so that the extent of heterogeneity and diversity within the mm-hmm. system is minimized, is mm-hmm. one sort of strategy to cope with these this tension between mm-hmm. extending equality on one hand and um, maintaining, uh, I would say the way I discuss it in the book is a sort of closed access or restricted access Mm -hmm. to common goods. On the other hand, another way is by creating a more inclusive. So Mm -hmm. not using exclusion and maybe not being, uh, not having such strict sort of uh, ideas of who should belong in Mm -hmm. terms of um, similarities of characteristics, having a more inclusive uh, institution with uh, more diverse actors, more Mm -hmm. heterogeneous actors, but Um, then imposing um, an institutionalized hierarchy of decision-making rights amongst them. Mm -hmm. And then the third um, uh, uh, option Mm -hmm. that I talk about in terms of institutional designs that cope with these kinds of tensions Mm -hmm. is um, creating uh, exclusive multilateral settings. Mm -hmm. So institutions that are... um, that again are selective and who gets to participate and who doesn't get to participate. So mm-hmm. just to, you know, to sort of pull this all together, my, my argument is that what institutions do mm-hmm. uh, essentially is mm-hmm. to um, restrict or to they, you know, we think of institutions as mm-hmm. um, producing public goods, but my argument is they don't really produce public goods. What they do is they create a, uh, property rules Mm -hmm. and property rights. And that is they create rules that restrict which actors get to participate Mm -hmm. as uh, legitimate actors Mm -hmm. in an institution, Mm -hmm. which ones are extended rights, and which ones have Mm -hmm. access to common resources. And institutions do this in different ways, right? Create Mm -hmm. these restrictive rights. So as I said, again, Mm -hmm. sometimes by exclusion and by including actors that, you know, have Mm -hmm relative Mm -hmm. homogenous interests and sometimes by creating Mm -hmm. hierarchies and sometimes by creating sort of subsets of institutions. These are the kinds of strategies I talk about for managing these restrictive rights.
0: Mm -hmm. But when you talk about institutions, it's also, it's, it's good to point out that you also think about institutions in this broader setting, right? In your book, you have three examples, um, basically diplomacy, um, international law and international organizations. Of course, now, when, when, we, when, people, when you say international organizations, uh, institutions, of course, international organizations come to my mind, but I guess with diplomacy and international law, it's not that obvious, or at least, in my opinion, it's not on the surface. So could you please, please discuss maybe those two institutions, like diplomacy and international law, as institutions that um, created those uh, closed spaces, or in a sense, they structured or created order Simultaneously, uh, as you as as in your thesis, so they included some actors but excluded other actors. So, can we like start with the diplomacy in early in early in early modern Europe, so to speak, uh, and then go to international law? Um,
1: yeah. So I have an expansive understanding of institutions. Mm. So I see institutions as as the literature in IR. I think broadly mm. does as. Regularized patterns of behavior and interaction Mm -hmm. that are regulated by norms and principles, Mm -hmm. and I would include institutions. um, uh, There are sort of a range of of these regularized behaviors that Mm -hmm. we could call institutions, and international organizations is just one type. An international organization being an actual. Bureaucracy that um, you know has a mm-hmm. legal foundation and has uh, has a mandate, mm-hmm. um, often is has a physical location, mm-hmm. and this is something different from and it's a type of institution, mm-hmm. but it's not the only kind of institution. So institutions mm-hmm. are. are I think more broader than that kind of international organization that we usually typically think about as being an institution, and the institutions that I'm interested in are institutions of global scope, so mm-hmm. institutions that attempt to um, be system wide, as it were, to be encompassing of political actors. And um, the other ones that I um, and you know some people in the field call these primary institutions, mm-hmm. right? and the mm-hmm. the other two that I identify are. Uh, De- uh, diplomacy as an institutional form and, um, international law. Um, maybe a little easier to understand as an institution, right? It's a mm-hmm. law itself as an institution, a set of mm-hmm. rules and norms and principles that help mm-hmm. to regulate behavior. And, um, my argument is that each of these institutions is, um, important and central for the international system, mm-hmm. the ordering of the international system at a particular moment in time. So diplomacy mm. is central in early modern Europe. It's sort of the institution before we have international organizations, before we have um, a well-developed international mm. law. We have diplomatic interactions that help to order relations among actors. Mm. And then um, in the 18th century, 19th century, we have international law mm-hmm. as um, an institution that strongly orders international relations. And... Um, mm-hmm. I focus in the on the 20th in the 20th century on international organizations, where I think inter- international organizations become the primary form or a key form of uh, organizing international mm-hmm. uh, relations. So um, th- that's how I understand institutions. And um, I think of um, diplomacy as mm-hmm. uh, also a set of norms and principles that help to regulate behavior and pattern behavior amongst uh actors. And one of the reasons I talk about it is because I think that if we take this really—so mm-hmm. if you look at the expansion thesis, it generally looks at um, a relatively recent period in history mm-hmm. to, to, to think about um, how the institution has—how um, how the European um, state system has changed over time. And mm-hmm. in fact, um, the expansion of International Society, a, a book edited by um, Bull and Watson, mm-hmm. um, it takes a historical perspective— but much mm-hmm. recent IR theorizing does focus on the period after 1945 mm-hmm. or after the end of the Cold War, primarily, and we lose the historical perspective. I think so. One of the aims of the book is also to take this long durée, this mm-hmm. really long-term historical perspective to see mm-hmm. when we widen the scope, you know, mm-hmm. what what do patterns look like then? And the interesting thing about mm-hmm. the period of early modern Europe and thinking about diplomacy mm-hmm. is that, you know, this is a period before the sovereign state was. Uh, the only essentially legitimate mm-hmm. political actor at the international level. There are many other actors mm-hmm. who were involved in international. What we today mm-hmm. would call I mean, even this term "international," I think, is um, mm-hmm. uh, you know wouldn't have been used um, then in this way. But what we today consider international, um, there there are many different actors mm-hmm. who were uh, who are active and who had a legitimate standing. And I think one of the things that diplomacy as an institution does, it it starts to winnow down who can actually speak mm. um, at the international level, who can legitimately represent interests at the international level. Mm-hmm. And it helps to create a system in which sovereign states become mm-hmm. the primary actor of the international system and other types of actors, individuals, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, religious groups, the church, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but other kinds of private actors, mm-hmm. firms, um, are no mm-hmm. longer considered legitimate actors. And mm-hmm. of course, international law then mm-hmm. uh, later comes in and essentially legalizes the status mm-hmm. of the territorial sovereign state, very particular notion and idea of the sovereign state mm-hmm. as the only legitimate actor who can access the rights of the international system, rights of war, mm-hmm. rights to trade, mm-hmm. um, who can sign treaties yeah. and so on. And so um, that's how I see these two institutions shaping mm-hmm. international order. And it tells us something mm-hmm. about other possibilities, right? That that sovereign state may not be, yeah, uh, just so. need not be the only legitimate political actor. Because there were times when yeah. there were other actors who but considered legitimate. The,
0: but on the other hand, I think we still live in the same system that emerged in early modern Europe. That for me, it was, I mean, of course, it's um, uh, in a sense before the diplomacy and before those interactions between uh, sovereign states, so to speak, um, even diplomacy in itself could be envisioned like very differently, so to speak. or there could be completely different actors as you as you as you rightly point point out. but uh, for me it's also like the moment when the whole system when uh, where we live now it was created back then and it still uh, traces back to to this moment and in in, in a sense because it, it it's anchored in uh, in uh, uh, in history so to speak in in the history of Europe. It's also, in a sense, uh, hard to envision anything else. At least I, I tried to have like this uh, mental experiment while reading this chapter. It's like, but like, of course, like when we talk about, let's say, corporations, could you could see corporations as actors in themselves, for example, in the modern, in the modern period of uh, of human development, so to speak, uh, or something like this. Um, but yeah, it was very hard even for me to to try to let uh, how to envision because you talk a lot about individuals. Uh, for me it was even harder to envision individuals because uh of course uh, you're born into this system, so to speak into this international system when you are uh, subject uh, even even as a subject of law you're subject to exclusively your own government first of all uh to your own state so to speak um so yeah. Uh, that's true.
1: So, I just wanted, so the, I mean that's the interesting um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> counterfactual thought experiment here, yeah. right? Is what what would the system look like if, for example, <laughs> individuals are not only subject to yeah. the law of their country of citizenship, which is yeah. primarily the case now, or what would the UN look like if yeah. individuals could be delegates instead of states, right? These are these yeah. are possibilities, and there are possibilities that have been also thought about historically, but they are not our current reality. <laughs> but you could imagine a you know system organized differently, or the rights divided differently. What about, for example, indigenous groups? Mm-hmm. They are also re- represented um, primarily through uh, through the sovereign state, right? But the sovereign mm-hmm. state, of course, um, uh, actively. Uh, impose a certain kind of political system mm-hmm. or polity on other political forms that existed. So, you know, the exercise is to think about what would the system mm-hmm. look like if we had uh, uh, other types of actors uh, who had rights and who had legitimate... Yeah.
0: Uh... Have you thought about it? Uh, at least um, I... I uh, there was a temptation while reading your book to, to think about it. At least that's how, how, yeah, how I read it. And uh, for me, it was difficult. Of course, I thought about corporations, for example, it seems uh, if Apple could have like relations with other countries by itself. I mean, I, I think they they could afford it in a sense. It would still be accumulation of some material capital, um, but it's really it was really hard for me to envision actually humans as the subjects because um, then you need to have something like a um, world government, so to speak, or then you need to have some feedback. You need to have some world state, which. Um, yeah, which which is even more interesting, I guess, and more um, intriguing. But of course, it it can it gives you like this idea, and it gives you this perspective of even uh, possibility to envision different world. So, have you thought about different types of um, uh, systems uh, or different types of uh, arrangements of the international system?
1: Well. Um... To come back to a point that you just uh, made a a moment ago about change over time, right? That this is essentially the same system that it was back in the time of early modern Europe and diplomacy. I actually think there's lots of change over time, Mm -hmm. right? So we we see change over time and systems can Mm -hmm. develop and they don't have to be Necessary static, but what I argue is that we see lots of change over time. But then within that change, there are mm-hmm. certain structural patterns that repeat mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and those structural patterns make it difficult to yeah. you know completely break out of um, the kinds of structures that we have today, and they become reinforcing in some sense. So, yeah. um, in other work that I've done, I've done a lot of work on mm-hmm. um, uh, issues of path dependence, for example, mm-hmm. reinforcing um, choices that have been made in the mm-hmm. past through the constraints that develop Mm -hmm. because of the choices that have been made. So I think we see that today in international organizations, it's difficult to change international organizations, for example, to Mm -hmm. allow uh, indigenous communities to represent themselves because Mm -hmm. we have a system that prioritizes the, um, the interests of States or the, or the political uh, Mm decision-making powers of States. And so, Mm -hmm. States also have a veto power mm-hmm. over whether and how the system changes. So mm-hmm. it, just institutionally, if we'd only mm-hmm. look at sort of the institutional possibilities for change, mm-hmm. right? They, there are constraints, there are real mm-hmm. constraints there. Um, but that doesn't mean that change doesn't happen. So change mm-hmm. does happen over time. Mm-hmm. And the interesting question is what, you know, what pushes that change over over time? Um,
0: but if, you, if you allow me, uh, I... I a little bit of pushback on this point because it seems it changed over time, but in a sense it still reinforces the same structural pattern of sovereign states. And uh, you, you, I guess in early modern Europe there were still many more actors, but over time the system closed so many times that now it's basically there is almost almost it's just it's just hard to envision anything else because it, it's almost like obvious that yes sovereign state is the only type of actor in the system and there is no even way. Uh, even or, or in, I would say, any uh, any international level you take, it's it's hard to to think about something else or to think some other possibility because the system, I guess, closed so many times or reinforced itself so many times. Um, so this is, I guess, uh, my point. In 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 a sense, uh, do you think that the change is possible by uh, changing the system or updating the system, or the change is possible by completely? Um uh, by envisioning something completely different, so to speak,
1: well, if you we talk about change i guess those are those are two paths right so mm-hmm. it would gradual gradual adjustment mm-hmm. and uh adaptation over time or a more radical uh, yeah uh revision of the system um and you know it's interesting to think about what mm-hmm. kinds of conditions would allow either of those possibilities to emerge, so you yeah. know in general, system change has happened, or major system change has happened in in a more rapid way
0: mm-hmm. when we've
1: had major calamities or catastrophes, right? Mm-hmm. So that that would be one that have given us sort of something like mm-hmm. it, maybe a tabula rasa, maybe not completely, but um, you know that would be a moment for system redesign, as it were.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay, so I don't I don't know if we should hope for that. I think that <laughs> you know that's a pretty radical, yeah, um, <laughs> and we don't know what kind of costs that would bring with it. But that doesn't mean that. Uh, gradual adaptation and change over time are not possible Mm -hmm. so i think that um one of the things i see change over time in the book but one of the things that i argue is uh persistent is this particular relationship between um uh sort of the structural relationship between equality and inequality which uh requires us to think about when when we make certain things when Mm -hmm. we equalize certain things and we Distribute, mm-hmm. for example, political rights equally amongst certain kinds of actors. Which actors are being excluded mm-hmm. from uh, from those decisions? So every mm-hmm. attempt to equalize certain actors mm-hmm. has implications for which actors we're deciding shouldn't count as equal. Right? And yeah. so this is this is, I think, yeah. a persistent dynamic that mm-hmm. ha- that that characterizes the system again and again, even if the the actual characteristics of the mm-hmm. system, the the specificities of the system, change over time. And I think that those um, patterns of inclusion and exclusion can also create the pressures for change, so mm-hmm. I think that in the the current international system, mm-hmm. there are um efforts to for example, include non state actors
0: mm-hmm.
1: in international decision making they're mm-hmm. not included as equals, and that mm-hmm. I think that sort of sort of uh, is part of you know what shows my argument, right? They're mm-hmm. they're included, but they're not included as equal. They're not rights holders at the international system. They don't have decision making power. But part of the mm-hmm. reason why we get um, a greater effort to, to include non state actors, and um, we're thinking about indigenous rights, we're mm-hmm. thinking about the rights of the individual. So mm-hmm. even at the rights of the individual, though you said it's hard to mm-hmm. imagine, right, not having to go through the state, but to have rights as an mm-hmm. individual at the international level, there are. Um, There have been some changes which Mm -hmm. sort of indicate that it might be possible to have rights Mm -hmm. as an individual at the international level. And I think those changes are essentially changes in response to the inequalities imposed by the the system that decides to include some and exclude others as rights holders. So essentially, Mm -hmm. the system in you know creating rights for Indigenous actors or in seeking rights for individuals is trying to repair mm-hmm. um, some of the distributional consequences, some of the distributional disadvantages mm-hmm. that have occurred from other decisions of inclusion and exclusion. So mm-hmm. these patterns of inclusion and exclusion, I think, um, th- that, that structural um, relationship is something that appears again and again mm-hmm. but the way the boundaries are drawn can change and yeah. the way the boundaries are drawn can also have implications mm-hmm. for what might change next so yeah. you know those who are excluded for example may make demands to be mm-hmm. included and those mm-hmm. demands under certain circumstances may need mm-hmm. to be responded to and yeah. that could be a motor of change in the system
0: yeah but it's also there was a time just 600 years ago 700 years ago when we lived the uh, Without this system, or in a completely different system, so I guess uh, I don't think it's 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 a hope that we can live in. The, but we can say it's a it's a possibility to envision something different. I guess that's um, uh, the question. My question would be in, in, in your uh, final chapter, you 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 are saying that um, it's not it's not tragic, right? Because referring obviously to the, the, the anarchy uh, argument and that the, the whole international system is uh, is a tragic because. There is no chance that could change, in the foreseeable future. But I guess that would we'll discuss now that in in your argument, we could envision actually different um, type of international system. But we have to be vigilant in terms of who we include and um, uh, how do we achieve this inclusion because we always. But 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 well, for me it was very interesting puzzle because uh, how I read your book in the sense that you always have to exclude someone in order to. Have a broader inclusion. In other words, you need to have um, um, you need to impose some sort of. I, I would use this like as you, as you used a couple of times local perspective on people, and it means excluding other ideas. And uh, in a sense, that's this uh, inevitable um, inevit- inevitable path in, in in organization of almost like human societies, so to speak. So that's why I maybe wanted to uh, linger on this point, in the sense of like, uh, why do you think it's uh, uh, why do you think it's not tragic, but also what do you think is the path to um, to to create a better society, to create a way much more equal society, so to speak?
1: Yeah. So as I as I just said, you know, I think there is this structural relationship, this Mm -hmm. mutual implication between equality and inequality, and Mm -hmm. I think. the way I talk about it in the book is that there are, there are two kinds of relationships that link the two. One is a constitutive relationship mm-hmm. that when we decide who should be equalized or which actors are equal, we have to make decisions about which ones don't fit those criteria, which ones are not equal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a constitutive relationship there. And then I argue there's also a causal relationship mm-hmm. between the distribution of uh, equal and mm-hmm. unequal political rights so that mm-hmm. once, you know, when we have... Um, an increasing number of diverse and heterogeneous actors that um, are sharing in common goods, that incumbent actors uh, have incentives not to distribute political rights equally because they're worried about collective action problems, they're worried about uh, demands for redistribution, and that creates Mm -hmm. incentives for um, actually inclusion to be accompanied by new forms of uh, inequality. So political hierarchies, for example, Mm -hmm. being one of them. Within international organizations, so uh, this is I, so I think there's a mutual implication, and I think it has this constitutive and causal logic, and, mm-hmm. and from that you might argue, okay, but well, if that's the case, then mm-hmm. it is tragic, right? We're sort of doomed to repeat this kind of cycle, and, and every time we try to equalize, we're uh, we're not equalizing everyone, and every time. That we want to be more mm-hmm. inclusive, we're going to face incentives mm-hmm. and pressures to actually gradate rights, mm-hmm. and that you know there's a way to see that as tragic. But yeah. I argue that we don't have to see <laughs> it as tragic.
0: Maybe right? so, it tra- tragic is a is a very heavy word. It's a heavy uh,
1: word. Yeah, I um I, I do use it in the book because I you know yeah. the, this is a few people um. have have talked about it in this tragic sense, but I I I want to so I don't want to leave. I don't want to end the book on that tragic yeah. note, right? So my my argument is that. It doesn't mean that there's no way to sort of... Oh, so mm-hmm. the, the the question that the book poses to us is not mm-hmm. whether we're doomed to have inequalities mm-hmm. forever. I think that's not the interesting question here. I think mm-hmm. the interesting question is how do we decide where we draw those boundaries? Yeah. Um, and that, I think, requires thinking about you know where do you want to draw those boundaries? What do we think... Um, should be the criteria for being considered a legitimate act or, or for being uh, a subject of rights or not. And, Mm. um, you know, those are normative questions that I can't answer and they don't answer in the Mm. book. But um, if we wanted to think about how to uh, transform the system or change Mm. the system, um, I argue that this argument that I make tells us at least two points where we could look. So, um, as I said, I argue that the relationship between equality and inequality has a constitutive element. Mm -hmm. So one of the places we can look to change things to think Mm -hmm. about how do we constitute these equalities and inequalities? Mm -hmm. Where do we draw these boundaries? Mm -hmm. And can we loosen some of the categories Mm -hmm. that we impose to uh, allocate Mm -hmm. rights in the system? So for example, um, the sovereign state, Mm -hmm. right? Does the sovereign state need to be the primary or only legitimate political actor internationally? Mm -hmm. Or are there ways to think um, more openly uh, about Um, How we constitute, Mm -hmm. uh, or where we draw the boundary of um, uh, of who is a rights subject of rights or not, and then the second part of the argument is a causal Mm -hmm. argument where uh, I say that there's this causal relationship Mm -hmm. between um, a more inclusive and equalizing system and Mm -hmm. then pressures to grade it and make Mm -hmm. rights more unequal, and uh, the reason so I I in the book I combine a Weberian idea of social closure. Mm -hmm with an economics Mm -hmm. idea of uh, public goods. And I argue that the incentives for incumbents Mm -hmm. to want to gradate rights and Mm -hmm. to manage what Mm -hmm. um, could be seen as the problems or the risks of more heterogeneous and diverse membership Mm -hmm. um, come from the uh, incentives around restricting access to certain goods, to making Mm -hmm. uh, a a limited group um, enjoy these club goods. And so... Uh, if we think about that part of the argument, another way we can think about getting change is to think about changing mm. those incentives. And yeah. changing those incentives may mean changing the distribution of property mm. rights, changing how we think about property rights, mean mm. redistribution of material terms. Um, so those are, I think, two ways where we can think about how mm. to make yeah. the ending sort of not tragic, right? Yeah. But I don't say how. I don't say how we can do it, this, right? I don't, that I leave to uh <laughs> You, you
0: to open the, the mental exercise to envision different futures and to envision different systems because that's what I thought while reading your book. Um, and I thought, it, but I still thought it in a very, um, okay, I'll use tragic sense, for example, we could have a different system, but because of, let's say, like anarchy and material redistribution of resources, you will have something similar but with, Corporations as main actors. Not not. I, I, I don't. I don't, um, I don't have this hope that individuals could truly enjoy their freedoms and live in this uh, um, kind of utopic society. Uh, because there is a, a certainly something like a redistribution of material capability. And even if it's not because of states, then there can be someone else like corporations. Because I guess corporations are just a good example because they're almost states in themselves. Um, okay. But now let me shift the gear, so to speak, to, uh, to to Europe and to what is going on in Europe. And while reading your book, especially the first chapter of the false promises of the universalism, I had this uh, persistent idea of, uh, uh, oh, I had this just idea in mind. Um, oh, 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 only, oh, have you, oh, let, me, let me frame it this way. Have you thought about the current uh, security architecture in Europe as the system of closure? And I think I can elaborate on this in terms of, If you think about NATO, especially after the 1990s, the whole NATO enlargement process was designed to, of course, include many more members, but this inclusion ultimately is achieved by excluding other perspectives or by excluding other actors and by homogenization in a sense because um, now NATO in itself is a way much more uh, homogenous grouping that enjoys the benefits you can you can see the benefits as a peace in Europe but uh, this is ultimately achieved by by drawing the categories and drawing this uh, clear line between us versus them them so to speak so have you have you ever thought about it uh, in the sense of uh, um, have you thought about NATO as a let's say international organization uh, as like the system of closure
1: well I don't um, deal with NATO in the book, mm-hmm. and um, as I said, I, I really focus on these uh, institutions mm-hmm. of uh, global scope. Okay. But uh, I, I have gotten this question mm-hmm. um, quite a few times: mm-hmm. if if there is not only NATO but also mm-hmm. regional organizations in the EU, if we can mm-hmm. think about um, these organizations in similar terms, and I mean, I do think that we see some parallels. So, for example, this um, this tension or trade off between, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, depth or breadth for example of how mm-hmm. how inclusive are you going to be versus what does that inclusion do to the, ben- mm-hmm. to, the to the ability of each member to enjoy benefits mm-hmm. right this is mm-hmm. the, one of the core tensions that I talk about in the book about mm-hmm. why extending equality becomes so difficult why mm-hmm. it is met often with um further gradation of rights so i think that tension seems mm-hmm. to apply right yeah. in, both in the eu but and also in nato and i think that we could um, characterize NATO as a club, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, Mm -hmm. it's meant to be uh, a limited organization that it's not meant to be universal. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to uh, allow members to enjoy um, their common, common resources, the resources Mm -hmm. that they create together. Mm -hmm. And if we think about it that way, then of course, those who are -hmm. um, are excluded, right, are not allowed to participate in those benefits. And it has Mm -hmm. these exclusionary effects. And, Exclusionary, these exclusionary effects have distributive mm-hmm. consequences and those distributive consequences <laughs> could be really meaningful, right? For politics, yeah. right? For, you know, what are the costs imposed on those who mm-hmm. are not yeah. allowed to be included?
0: But I also thought, in a sense, uh, all the NATO, of course, is not an um, organization with a global scope, but it uses universal language, so to speak, universalistic language, and very often it refers to UN Charter and stuff like this. So that's why I thought, like while reading especially this chart on the false promises for universalism this idea of, um, of course, assimilation and uh, uh, making, let's say, all European states similar, but at, at the same time there is a definitely a distinct boundary and, of course, uh, the question became acute with the Ukraine. Uh, um, and um, some may argue that Russia actually tried to, to become NATO member but received a, a non-satisfactory reply, so to speak. But Uh, how did uh, let me ask how did the war actually change your thinking because uh, as far as i understand you published the book before the war Uh, and let me ask how did the war change your thinking about the future of international order so to speak or international system
1: well the war is ongoing i think it's uh, really difficult to see Mm. forward to what kinds of changes we might Mm. wait and i think there i mean there are Different ways to think about this. So, the war is incredibly meaningful for Europe, right? mm-hmm. and I think that um, in that sense, it is absolutely uh, transformative. The, the particular moment we are right mm-hmm. now in in Europe, but if you think about more broadly in international order, mm-hmm. and I think you know, we may see this in when we look at how the UN and members of the UN from other parts of the world mm-hmm. reacted to the war. I'm not sure that. Um, other countries far away from Europe Mm -hmm. see this particular war as transformative of how they Mm -hmm. interact with the international order, right? So Mm -hmm. I I think there's one way to see this as um, a European conflict and Mm -hmm. we don't want to sort of um, engage in sort of a a kind of Eurocentrism that sees that this is transformative for everybody in the Mm -hmm. system. So, I mean, if you think about you know how India reacted, right? How mm. many countries in Africa reacted, or in Asia? Um, I think mm. their perspective on the war may be different than the one from Europe, understandably. Mm. But um, that doesn't mean that it, you know it's, it's obviously a major mm. crisis and a major event, mm. and it's also engaging major players. We mm. have Europe, mm. Russia, the mm. United States. Mm-hmm. And so that means that uh, we can expect certainly that realignment of, mm-hmm. um, of of certain interests. And I think one of the ones to, to look at in the future is how this um, conflict in Europe can uh, mm-hmm. affect a realignment in, in terms of the geopolitical rivalry of the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, China's not directly party to the mm-hmm. conflict, obviously, but um, I think that the conflict has um, done, uh, you know, has um, or and has implications, it will have implications mm-hmm. to reshape the rivalry between the United States mm-hmm. and China. And it seems to me at the moment that it's heightening that rivalry.
0: Yeah, but also, in, I, I'm not uh, an expert on China, and I, I think I always like this perspective of uh, of understanding, truly understanding uh, relations between the US and China, but it, it seems to me uh, and when the war actually happened, because for me, it's, uh, for, for Americans, let's say, it's way much more easier to understand Russian perspective because it, the Russians are still Europeans and they still think in the same type of thinking, still involved in the same pros and cons, but for me, for example, I think it's it's way much more likely uh, it it's way, it's way much more likely that the conflict between the US and China ha- will happen at a certain point because there's just like so much misunderstanding i guess between the two and of course even for me when the, of course the, the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine happened which is also in a same. of course in some sense the conflict the broader conflict between the west and Russia um that the conflict between China and the U.S. Uh, is almost inevitable down the road, because, again, there is just this trajectory that the things getting worse and uh, they're not getting better. In, 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 like, the same was true for uh, Russia, the U.S., the West, before, before the war, and it seems the same is true for, uh, of course, China and the U.S., uh, unfortunately, because I guess that's uh, this. This is the truly <laughs> tragic perspective. Uh. Well, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't.
1: I don't see conflict as inevitable. And in yeah. fact, I mean, I think that you know, conflict between the United States and China is you know, would mean something different than yeah. um, the the uh, Russian war in mm-hmm. Ukraine, um, just in terms of material terms and in terms yeah. of costs. And I think that um, there, you know, we're talking about a different dimension that. Um, um I, you know i don't think there's an inevitability mm-hmm. in that yeah. but i you know there are um i, I think China's closely watching what's mm-hmm. happening right and i think there are uh on the one hand there there's a question of the united states and western credibility mm-hmm. right what is the west willing to do mm-hmm. um and how far is the west willing to go to mm-hmm. defend certain interests and certain mm-hmm. values yeah um, there's also in a more pragmatic sense. What does the battlefield mm-hmm. look like? I think mm-hmm. China's looking very carefully, as mm-hmm. is the United States. What is What are the battlefield di- dynamics mm-hmm. and what does that mean for any kind of future war? And, um, of course, there's the issue of Taiwan, right? China yeah. has its own territorial dispute mm-hmm. with Taiwan. The United States um, has, uh, in the past, made a commitment to Taiwan, mm-hmm. and, but always um, under the guise of strategic ambiguity. And um, you, you know, Biden has essentially made a decision to... Yeah. Uh, abandon that strategic ambiguity, because I think the United States is worried that um, not necessarily that China will take this moment to invade Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I think you know there are good strategic reasons of you know that to think mm-hmm. that that's not going to happen mm-hmm. but um but to send a certain kind of signal mm-hmm. right? um, And so you know I think there's a lot of messaging going on um, in addition to you know all the other uh, layers of the conflict. And, um, you know, this, the messaging is around mm-hmm. credibility and it's around resolve. It's around, you know, what issues are, um uh, mm-hmm. uh, are states willing to, mm-hmm. um, actually engage in military conflict over and which ones can be resolved, mm-hmm. um, in other terms. And I think even though the rivalry between the United States and China seems to be intensifying, I think there is, um, uh, you know, there is a lot of scope still to yeah. work on cooperative relations. Right? There, mm-hmm. there are a lot of shared interests okay. on both sides, and I think there are also shared interests to avoid a conflict. So I don't see it as an yes. I think um, yep. oh, maybe <laughs> a little more optimistic. <laughs> than,
0: <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's what I thought. Uh, and of course, you also think about Russia as a very, in, in comparison to the U.S. and to the the broader West, it's a it's a smaller power. It's not. It's, it doesn't have that much capacity. But on the other hand, you can argue that, for example, Chinese. Uh, have never been involved in a bigger conflict. So for them, it's actually maybe harder to envision the war with Taiwan the same way Russia even could envision the war between Russia and, and Ukraine. Um, let me also ask, have you thought about the causes of this war? Like what what, 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 what did cause this conflict in, in your in your opinion?
1: Well, I mean, you know that that's <laughs> a really vague question and many people have been thinking about that and, <laughs> and writing about that. Um, and there are lots of arguments out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know, we will have we will be studying this yeah, war yeah. for a long time, yes, right? True. And yeah. um, and it's I think it is um, in some senses a really interesting and puzzling and mm-hmm. um, and and complex question. Uh, so I do think that um, you know this is something that will be studied for a long time to come. But I, probably a first cut is to think in in terms of more immediate. Proximate causes, mm-hmm. more sort of midterm causes, yeah. and deeper, long, longer term mm-hmm. causes, and I, you know, we touched on it already before. I think that mm-hmm. if you think about longer term causes, mm-hmm. uh, the way that the Cold War ended, mm-hmm. um, the way that um, it not only vis a vis Russia, but um, all the post communist countries, mm-hmm. um, uh, the way that the transition was managed, the mm-hmm. the principles, right, we had. Mm-hmm. This idea of shock therapy, yeah. uh, but also the practices and also mm-hmm. the the, uh, the levels of support that were given, mm-hmm. um, I think have proven in in hindsight after mm-hmm. several decades to have been insufficient or mm-hmm. not um, not you know, prioritized in the right way. Right? so we have, mm-hmm. um, you already mentioned you know, there were attempts to, Mm -hmm. um, by both Russia and the West, to Mm -hmm. find a way to integrate Russia Mm -hmm. better into uh, security arrangement, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that be directly within Mm -hmm. NATO or in some dialogue process, right? Um, But it's not only vis-a-vis Russia. I mean, you think think about vis-a-vis other Eastern European Mm -hmm. countries, um, their, you know, the transition... Uh, the economic transition, the political transition in the 1990s was really a lot rougher than I yeah. guess the the West was uh, willing to recognize at the time, right? Uh, so from corruption to mm-hmm. um, to in- rising inequalities yeah. to instability, mm-hmm. uh, to personal instability, um, it seems to me that we'd have to look for deeper causes um, all the way at the mm-hmm. uh, at the end of or the, the management of the end of the Cold War, and then you know there there uh, you know I think. If we think about NATO expansion it seems clear that um you know as a maybe an intermediate cause mm-hmm. or, or a midterm cause the um expansion of nato um was seen as mm-hmm. uh, threatening by russia and russia mm-hmm. said it also to the west many times mm-hmm. that um it had uh, a need for a buffer zone and security mm-hmm. uh, vis-a-vis NATO, and that it mm-hmm. that it saw expansion as mm-hmm. threatening. So, i i don't I don't belong to those group of people who see NATO expansion as a direct cause for the war, but I mm-hmm. think it's a contributing factor, right? And the question yeah. is, could that have been managed in a way that um, yeah. um, that wouldn't have led to this kind of mistrust and you know f- feelings of insecurity? And then you know. I don't know if we could call those longer term causes or midterm causes or more mm-hmm. proximate causes, but I think we also have to look at, you know, Russia's own goals and and Putin's own uh, idea of the role of Russia in the world, which I think um, goes well beyond a particular mm-hmm. uh, insecurity or threat mm-hmm. coming from NATO. Um, you know, the expanse mm-hmm. of the nature of the war in Ukraine, I think um, points to a mm-hmm. different set of goals, a different set of interests that, mm-hmm. Are not just security driven, not mm-hmm. just Western driven, yeah. but also, um, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert in this area, but of pe- you know, people who mm-hmm. are talk a lot about an imperial mm-hmm. vision yeah. that uh, that is also driving um, the particular goals here that Putin has. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think one, if we think about really deeper causes, we might think about, you know, what what led Russia towards this kind of nationalism, what led uh Russia to the point where putin can yeah. uh you know come to power in this way, and so again coming back to some of the maybe immediate post cold war politics
0: yeah so if we think about long term causes um do do you think in a sense because it, it I find it very appealing and people of course will study this conflict and will go into history books uh, in a sense that uh, there will be a chapter on the, on post um uh, Post Cold War period, and then this chapter basically ended on uh, February 24th. Uh, that there is something uh, new going on in the world international system. So, do you think we do you think we still live in the in in um, let's say American led international world order, or do you think like the war um, in a sense changed it, or that we live in a multipolar world order, or that that the war itself um, kind of opened the new chapter in history so to speak in human history
1: um. well i think that um the war actually showed the importance of american leadership okay. um, in a time when i think that leadership was in doubt mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. on, in the, i think sort of in, in the in the broader perspective the longer term perspective um i think that the united states has been in something like relative decline relative mm-hmm. not absolute for mm-hmm. sure but um and, you know, its leadership role has also been in relative decline mm-hmm. since probably in the early 2000s or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the war, I think, has mm-hmm. shown that there, you know, the, yeah. in times of crisis, um, there, it's unclear where other leadership would come from. Right, And um, I think there the United States has been a crucial actor in sort of anchoring the West in its reaction. And I think going forward, the issue is not whether the United States will – um, recaptures where sort of this leadership role—I mm-hmm. don't think it will—but how other states will step up to the leadership challenge. So, yeah. you know, the 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 world is becoming more multipolar. The United mm-hmm. States um, uh, cannot single-handedly um, order the system, right? Mm-hmm. It cannot make and keep uh, the extensive security mm-hmm. guarantees to uh, to other actors that uh, it may have been able to keep after. Mm-hmm the end of World War, I, uh, World War II, for example, or, mm-hmm. you know, even in economic terms, the United States has its own, you know, domestic mm-hmm. debate about mm-hmm. the extent to which, um, y- y- you know, it needs to reinvest mm-hmm. um, resources domestically mm-hmm. and to the, way it need, mm-hmm. to the extent to which it needs to protect its own economic interests, for example. And so I, I think that, uh, and then I think that as mm-hmm. we've talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, the problems are... Um, of global nature Mm -hmm. are not ones that can be really Mm -hmm. solved by a single actor. Mm -hmm. And so there will be a need for other actors Mm -hmm. to come to the table. And I think if if you ask me what I mean by sort of relative Mm -hmm. hegemonic decline, I mean that the leadership role of the United States is in decline because other actors are, are systemically important for solving Mm -hmm. the kinds of problems and crises Mm -hmm. and challenges that Mm -hmm. are um, present internationally. So Mm -hmm. On a you know global scale problem, so I think mm-hmm. that I think that's where uh, we continue to go mm-hmm. in the future. So I don't think that the United States will be able to play mm-hmm. the same kind of role it was able to play in the post World War II order in this new post Ukraine war mm-hmm. order, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, even though I think the United States is, has in, a, in a, an important way taken on a leadership role um, f- for um, the European and, and, and mm-hmm. U.S. response. Uh, I think that especially European states will need to, and Germany mm-hmm. will need to uh, really think about mm-hmm. what kind of role they will play going forward. And I think, you know, we talked a lot about the, the media has talked about, a lot about the Zeitenwende and mm-hmm. what that means for Germany and what that means for uh, Germany's mm-hmm. military investments. Yeah. But I think Germany will also need to think about. Um, Political and economic reconstruction mm-hmm. in Europe, also, and yeah. I, I think that you know European actors will have to step up and play a major role in that, and, yeah. um, and I think the United States will play a, a big mm-hmm. role, but probably yeah. um, you know not it's, you know not going to be the same kind of role it played at the end of the Cold War and mm-hmm. World War Two.
0: Well, also, eventually, what's the role of Russia in in, in in European? I would say architecture, security architecture, or broader European uh, European order, so to speak which is, again, open questions, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's not possible to know the answers. I'm I I I I I
1: curious what, what you think about that. I mean, I, it, I really don't know. I mean, that's, a, um, that's an interesting I, question. I
0: think eventually there is no, uh, I guess it's the same as, uh, I think you can, you can draw a lot of analogies between current situation and pre-World War II period of time. And I guess eventually Russia should be somehow integrated. Uh, and this is the whole question. And I guess Russia also uh, fights uh, for a better position in this European security architecture. I, I, I truly don't think that Russia thinks uh, uh, itself like, envisions itself as a, as a future leader of the international system, or a truly, or a country with a truly uh, global scope. I think it just uh, wants to have a, maybe a better future in in European security architecture, but. In Russian perspective, this 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 architecture um, should uh, American power should diminish, so to speak. Or, in other words, in other words, American power should diminish, and Russian maybe relative power should increase. Or, I guess that's a, this is how I, I I think in a sense, eventually in in thirty years down the yeah, road. I was going to
1: ask you what's your timeline on that. I think that's the interesting <laughs> question. I th- I think I would agree that I mean yeah. over the long term we have to think about. Uh, reintegrating yes. Russia, um, but the question is, what timeline are we talking about on yes. that? You know, is it?
0: Uh, I think thirty thirty years down the road, uh, and of course, for me, the the, the difficult the difficult part is uh, I I see that there is a gravitational pull towards bigger war because of course you have a mobilization of, uh, of the first mobilization in Russian society since basically World War World War Two, uh, and you have like the whole. I would say, nervousness, uh, and I guess it's something that couldn't be put eloquently even you know, in an academic article, but there, there is this um, almost like gravitational pull in society itself that a little bit suicidal, I would say. That's what I thought a lot, quite a lot, in, in the sense we talk to Russian people, and it seems like they're ready to give up everything for basically what? For, for basically the bigger war, because it, it's also, of course, it, it goes hand-in-hand hand with propaganda and with the making it's almost like, um, you can you could I think if you think about Putin, yeah, making Russian society nervous and so nervous to a point that there is like basically no 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 way forward, but to fight a bigger war, and uh, of course they train now all those people in school and just basically feeding them this propaganda um, that uh, there is nothing there is no better future than to fight for your country, something like this, and of course on top of that, that they really fight the big uh, European war. And it also gives them, in a sense, knowledge and advantage how to fight those wars because not so many, um, not so many leaders and not so many armies in the world could fight now big European war. In a sense, if they come to bigger European war in the future with this knowledge, it could give them advantage. Uh, but this is, uh, <laughs> of course, it's something that um, uh, like everyone uh, wants to avoid. But I, I see this a very tragic because again. I don't see how it can be resolved because if the situation goes the way it goes, there, is, uh, there are more chances that it will escalate.
1: That's what I wanted to ask you. Is it sounded like you're arguing that it might escalate, but another option mm-hmm. is that it just sort of gets frozen,
0: yeah. um,
1: in, you know, a long, drawn-out, protracted yeah. conflict the way it is essentially now, which is, I'm, mean, you mm-hmm. know, this is not preferable. I'm not saying it mean, yeah. also would be a tragic outcome, but... Yeah. That would be something different than escalation into a broader conflict. Yeah. You see it escalating?
0: Yeah, I see it escalating. And I, and I think, in a the sense, they're preparing for this. Like because, uh, um, I mean, I, I would even make an argument that the whole, uh, the whole point of Putin's was to start the war. In a sense, like to change, if you think about international system as a set of you know, patterns of behavior, just to change those patterns, just completely throw them out the window. So
1: to get the US and Europe into a
0: war. Just to change... like, Because the war changes uh, uh, positions and dispositions. Now, there's uh, something new in the system that is uh, creating a lot of... Because no one, of course, can control this, but at least you create some... Like, those windows and those chances and opportunities here and there uh, that Putin can use in the future. And I think... Uh, I guess, like, I, w- I would strongly argue that, of course, the point of Putin was to start the war. Maybe it's not even... Uh, and to, in a sense... Uh, anchor his own rule into the future because now Russian society has no other way but to deal with this war. It's like, if if he goes away, for example, before the war, I mean, there could be some liberalization or some move towards the West. Now, I mean, it's not possible because you have this war and everyone who comes after Putin has to deal with this conflict on on Putin's terms, so to speak. Um, This is, yeah, but... If we, if we talk about, no matter how it ends, so to speak, the war itself in Ukraine, I think, of course, it, it should end with the integration of Russia into a broader European community of nations, because, um, I mean, this is just, of course, my maybe my hopes. Yeah, <laughs> but sense. that won't be with Putin, then, anyway. No, no, of course not Putin, because it's, we are talking we're years. talking about 30 years. <laughs> 30 years, But but again, it's interesting how it can be achieved because uh, the tension is, I don't think Russian society, anyone in Russian society will accept some inferior position, so to speak. Um, um, yeah, uh, and I guess that's the whole...
1: And when you, when you talk about escalation, are you talking about NATO becoming more directly involved? I mean, di- NATO is involved, but yeah. more directly involved?
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, Mm, I guess so many ways to, of course, escalate from both Russian and NATO perspective. Uh, some type of uh, a weapon, so to speak, could cause this, or Russian could get directly involved in, in politics, so to speak, or can just provoke, uh, make some provocation in politics. Um, yeah, I just, I just see it as, a, as a something that is um, under no one's control, so to speak, the whole escalation ladder. But there are so many ways that it could escalate, so to speak. And of course, the more this conflict goes on, the more chances we have, so to speak. <laughs> um, and of course, this is, uh, it's this—it's hard to predict. Could, how, do you,
1: how do you see it ending? Do you have any idea?
0: No. <laughs> right now, right now, I think uh, I, I I envision I envision a broader conflict. Like I think, because I mean, I, I, I try to be very honest uh, with myself, and I, when I think about those things, like, okay. How can it end? And of course you go to to Russia and, you know, Russia must win because there is no, I mean, Russia started the whole thing and of course uh, there is no way backwards. And then you go to the West and it's the same thing. There is Ukraine must win. There is no way backwards. Um, um, And of course for me it's actually a very interesting question of uh, Ukraine and NATO will be there, like will be central to the resolution of the conflict. So no matter how we end this conflict, the question if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, whether like with the full territories or not, that's a win for Ukraine. If it has the right to become part of NATO and eventually be integrated fully in into Western Western world system, then it's a win, and it's a loss for Russia. And then it's and then it's I guess it, it gives you way much more texture when you think about those um, those problems. It gives you way much more details because then you think of course, but well, how can Russia ensure that Ukraine will never become part of NATO? And right now the answer is basically probably to destroy the country. If you destroy the country there is no problem with Ukraine becoming part of NATO. I guess that's is like the solution they're giving now because of course they're wrecking um, the country, so to speak, um, to the point when uh, it can collapse So uh, at least it, it survives now with the Western support, but also the Western support can end which can be also Russian logic. Uh, so the question of uh, Ukraine in NATO will be central, and it won't go away. Even though there is, I read some articles that there is. Uh, of course, when people talk about Ukraine and NATO now, there is a lot of, uh, like a lot of Western leaders. They don't want to discuss it, even though, of course, you know, it will be way much more honest to, to discuss this question already. Or at least it's, it's it's useful to think about it. Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. So well uh I hope um, but this is a gloomy perspective it's really yeah, it's truly it's really, truly it's really gloomy perspective I I gave it a lot of thought but <laughs> I try to think about something positive but well maybe in um in 50 years we could envision a completely different world system with different actors participating <laughs> well, we'll, have
1: to, we'll have to meet again in 50 years and yes, see where we yes, stand. Exactly. I mean, time, you know, time is uh does a lot of things, right? So uh
0: Yeah.
1: I think uh you know, we can expect a yes. many different scenarios to unfold over, over yes. fifty years. So maybe one of those or some of those won't be yes,
0: it's but gloomy. but let's not uh, let's not end on a gloomy point. Yeah. Let me ask you: uh, Do uh, can you give any any advice for people who want to develop their own ideas? And just uh, and just maybe you have to follow up question. So if you may, maybe can talk a little bit about how did you. Uh, what did it take you to to write this book and to develop this idea?
1: Well, it took me a long time to develop the mm-hmm. book, and one of the things that I I did was put it away for many years mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. come back to it and do other things in the meantime because I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to take it with, okay. uh, in and I wasn't I wasn't clear yet on w- the argument that I really wanted to make, and I think that did the book good at the end mm-hmm. of the day rather than rush it through. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, It was a luxurious position to be Mm -hmm. in to be able to do that and Mm -hmm. to work on other things in the meantime, but uh, that could be a productive way Mm -hmm. to deal with something like that. So um, that's uh, my story with the book. Um, But for other people who are interested in pursuing their ideas Mm -hmm. or writing a book or engaging in research Mm -hmm. or doing a PhD, for example, I think... uh, one one piece of advice, I mean, in addition to sort of all the ones you know already, get good mm. training. Mm. Right, is to read widely. I think reading mm. widely and broadly is really a key part, especially mm. um, early on in thinking about ideas, because mm. uh, you never know where inspiration is going to come from. And yeah. um, I think that's something you can see in my book that I draw on literature from a lot of different places. And that's something um, that I always found inspiring to think about how other people have thought about big mm. questions and to see where there are parallels or analogies, even though. It might not be directly the same question you're thinking of but where there are you know insights from other issues and other problems that could be relevant and helpful so i think you know reading broadly and widely is uh and in beyond disciplinary boundaries also to come back (laughs) to a theme we started with uh is is important uh is important to do that and um yeah and you know i Mm -hmm. think it's important to have uh to have big ideas out there. So for anyone who is interested, I you know, encourage and, you to do it.
0: And to take, uh, and to, to, to take breaks to develop such a... Um, yeah, seminal. sometimes you
1: need to, sometimes you just you know, put it aside. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah but uh, the book is uh, fascinating. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'll come back to it uh, many times and it's, uh, it's very interesting. And I, I recommend everyone reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. So thank you very much. And I hope to see you in the future episodes.
1: Great. Thank you.